God, it sounded like a game show host. Throw the wheel, Adam. Will, what will you get? Apparently, that's what we're slowly melding into. So we have today on our game show Uncertain Things, Helen Lewis. But before, we actually have a cool announcement. Mm-hmm. We have our first ever live, virtual, spectacular event. <laughs> Well, spectacular remains to be seen. A, spec- but, a spectacle can be good or bad, Adam. It could end in flames. Fair enough. And it would be on brand. It would be on brand. <laughs> we are having a, a small intimate discussion with Neil Ferguson and Martin Gurry, audience favorites. Yes. We talked to Neil about his book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Last year. Yes. And to Gurry about his book, Revolt of the Public, which Mm -hmm. we have, I think, since anointed the Uncertain Things Bible. Right. Both authors think about our society's impending (laughs) collapse, how we got here, in a very nuanced, uh, thoughtful way. And different way. Yes. And that's why I mentioned both of them in my newsletter after the uh, Peter Turchin episode. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to weave the thread between Turchin, Fukuyama, uh, Ferguson, and Guri. That was a very good newsletter, by the way. I liked that one. Uh, thank you. Cancel vultures. You mentioned as you were editing it that, well, actually, why, why don't we bring them for a panel uh, to actually talk about it? And then you even went further and said, we should do it live. And I was like, I... My head exploded from the uh, anticipatory headache of (laughs) making it happen. But but here we are. Well, the fun thing was that we emailed them independently and said, what would you think about having a conversation with the other? And they both independently said, oh, I really like and admire that person. I would love to have a chat with them. So that that was great because they were on board from basically the beginning, which is wonderful. So if you want to join, we're capping it at 35 attendees. We want to let people participate in the discussion somewhat and be able to ask questions. If you want to attend, it's free. It is free, which is great. However, if you are a paid Uncertain Things subscriber, i.e. paid on the uncertain.substack.com, you get access first. So for the next week, only Uncertain subscribers who pay get access to the event. So as we said, it's only 35 spots. So that gives you a good shot of definitely getting a spot if you're a paid subscriber. If you're not, then on February 15th, we will open it up to everybody. Um, and then you just have to be fast and just get your spot before it goes away. Okay. Next is our interview. Uh, Helen Lewis. Yes. Do you want to set it up? Sure. Helen Lewis, a staff writer for The Atlantic, radio journalist. She did this excellent new program for BBC4 called The New Gurus, where each episode looks at a different aspect of gurudom, from wellness to crypto to doomsayers, uh, and how they have so captivated the 21st century audience. So it's an excellent deep dive. So we invited her on to talk about that, especially because it seems like gurus have such a pull over our lives because of the decline of religion. And Helen has talked 
a lot about that, written a lot about that. She did a great series called The Church of Social Justice, which also thought about the different ways that kind of leftist ideology is replacing religion. So it's something that we've been thinking about a lot and we were really excited to to chat with with Helen about as well. And just generally the idea of a charismatic personality filling the void for people and the the potential dark paths that it can take you down. Cult content and scammer content is one of my weird guilty pleasures. Um, mm. I don't know why. I mean, I can, I can explain it. I think I just find the psychology fascinating. The relationship between the manipulated and the manipulator and right. the way that they affect each other, the perverted symbiosis intrigues me. Right. My favorite part of the interview actually is we, we got into the difference between a guru and a genius the way they're similar and different. And it's interesting because Helen's literally writing a book called The Selfish Genius. So she had a lot to say on this front. And it, it let us call back to our conversation with Eli Lake about, you know, the ways that we re- relate to artists. Um, so that for me was actually the most compelling part. We have some conversations coming up in the future about art and production and the content economy. And I think we'll pick up on some of those threads in our future conversations as well. So with that, as a reminder, if you want to become a paid member, we are uh, at uncertain.substack.com. Also, you can sign up without being a paid member and just support us and mm-hmm. leave some comments or enjoy our newsletter mm-hmm. if you so choose. And share us with your friends and enemies as always. Five stars on Apple if generosity fills your heart. And with that, Alan Lewis. Adam, shall I drive into the first question or would you like to take it away? Go, go. You're ready for it. Okay. I'm on fire. I had a coffee. I had a coffee right before this. I'm like caffeinated. Apologies, Ellen. Um, okay, so... And I hooked up on all the Jordan Peterson content that you've consumed. I was the only one in the world, Helen, who just only recently watched that interview. <laughs> I watched Congratulations. It, like yesterday. So it's fresh on my mind. I'm sure it's, you know, far distant memory for you now, but... I'll add that this, I believe, is the first piece of Jordan Peterson content that Vanessa has consumed in general. Ever. Yeah. It was it was my first introduction. <laughs> I can't. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I guess good to have a long form introduction, but I think you know I caught him at a particular time in his life, so it might not be the most balanced introduction to his work. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Adam has since keyed me in that he's had a bit of a trajectory since that interview as well. So, but that's something I think we'll get into in this conversation is the the uh, the, the cycles of enchantment and disenchantment with gurus. Uh, but but I'm jumping ahead because I think the. Before we get into gurus, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about why the world is so ripe for them at the moment. Uh, and we've, we've kind of described it as this the voidiness, I guess, of the current uh, moment. It's something we've been thinking about a lot. We actually pitched a series very similar to the new gurus uh, to an outlet that didn't get picked up. But we've been thinking about it a lot. We've been seeing many disparate threads about this kind of sense of lack. Um, so we wanted to ask you first, like, what when you were thinking about starting this series, what were the threads that you were seeing and picking up on that made you think, yes, there's this is there's something here that I want to do a show about? One of them was the decline of um, established religion. And that's something that you see in census uh, statistics, both in the US and the UK. You know, even since the 90s, actually, like the decline in church going. Um, something I think is a huge factor in this, again, in the US, particularly is polarization and the lack of a kind of middle ground in the media, right? You know, the fact that people are in, off in their bubbles and echo chambers. Then there's also the technology and economics of it, you know, the kind of creation of platforms like YouTube, like Patreon, Substack, 
you know, now also all the, you know, Rumble, um, all of these um, platforms for people with various levels of kind of censorship or not. And then there's the money aspect of it where particularly, I mean, wellness supplements have always been big business, um, but crypto in particular, you know, that has been a huge economic engine behind lots of internet content over the last couple of years. So it was a confluence of all of those factors. And then add to that the fact that, you know, I think there is a human desire always to listen to kind of incredibly entertaining, charismatic people. And given the technology that we now have, it's never been easier to find and build an audience. So you diagnose why this is happening as mainly the loss of religion as a center for meaning derivation, as well as the, uh, you know, and substance, as well as the technology that makes it easier for people to discover new priests? Well, I think it's, yeah, I think the, the thing that we, I never think we have grappled with in the last 20 years, actually really during my adult lifetime, is the switch from most people's primary way of relating to other people being moved from geography basis to an interest basis, right? Um, and I saw this when I was young, you know, when I was in my teens, I became a member of a site called BME Zine, which was Body Modification Easing. And it was a big subcultural site at the time. And it had a very early sort of proto kind of MySpace-esque social network associated with it. And that was people from, you know, Oklahoma, I knew people in and, and Vancouver, and they were all interested in body modification. And, I, you know, simply if I had been born even five years earlier, that wouldn't have been the people that I spent hours every night with during my adolescence. It simply wouldn't have been possible. So that has been, I think, an enormous switch within our lifetimes in how we relate to other people. Right, so if I understand, right, so your point is when it was more about proximity, you would absorb the parts of your community that you had in common and then had to also accept and tolerate those areas in which you uh, had differences, like your politics, for instance. But when technology enables you to build communities diffusely and you're, you find yourself connecting around niche interests, like cryptocurrency, for instance, with people around the world, suddenly that becomes your core community. And as a result, you attach a lot of significance to this topic. It becomes essential to your identity. And you discover suddenly that you are a lot less tolerant to people outside of that or who have differing opinions about this thing that in the past would have just been one of the many things that define you, but now is at the heart of who you are as a social creature. That's one of the things that I think can happen. And that's some of the um, stuff that's covered in uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, you know, by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanioff. The idea being that usually, you know, you had to recruit the police from just whoever lived in your town or whoever lived in that district. And that meant that there were maybe a kind of greater variety of people. The same thing with sort of small-time academics. You know, when you have these much bigger markets, you get these sort of self-sortings. And I think a similar thing is true of like, you know, if you were a, if somebody, if you were a furry in 1950, you know, I mean, I'm sure there were people who liked the thought of themselves as animals throughout history. But like the chance of you meeting somebody else like that and finding out about that person were very small. And if you're a furry in 2023... I've got absolutely great news for you. You know what I mean? It is much easier to build interest-based communities. But you're right, they can become, um, because you're not doing what Terry Pratchett referred to as the kind of Brownian motion of society, right? You're, you're self-excluding lots of people. There is a potential to end up becoming quite hung up on the in-group and the out-group in a way that, you know, might have once been the way that the English traditionally always hated the French, right? But now it might very well be heterodox podcasters and their war on the woke. And, the, you know, and those battle lines are being drawn in different places. And what's the leap then or connection between 
a world in which we find community in these subcultures of the internet towards seeking a guru? Like, is there something about interacting with people in a non-physical embodied way that leaves us more open to capture or something? Like, what's, what is this connection in your mind, do you see? Well, there's, there's an effect on the guru and the effect on the audience. And so there is a concept that we discuss in the series called the idea of the parasocial relationship, which is this relationship between one person and their, you know, and their audience. And the way that their audience feels this incredibly strong connection with somebody, you know, your podcast listeners might be listening to hours of you talking a week. And that's a very intimate connection to have, you know, hearing someone's voice, hearing the little bits of your life that slip into it. And what happens is people end up having these very deep, intense bonds with people they've never, never met. And then it happens something in the other direction too, which is that if you publish anything on the internet, whether it be Twitter, YouTube, or even a podcast, you cannot avoid hearing about the feedback. And that makes internet gurus very susceptible to audience capture. And not just audience capture, as in giving your audience exactly what they want, but also in a process of extremification. Because if there are 90 people making diet content, the algorithm might very well lead people to extreme diet content. And the way to prosper in that space is to be not just kind of, hey, have you thought about eating some vegetables? But to be like, have you only thought about eating vegetables? Have you thought about being a high raw vegan? Have you thought about doing this purge? You know, the way that you have to constantly create content, but also differentiate yourself. So what we saw again and again with people who had attained internet fame and internet guru status is that there was a pull constantly towards making them become more outrageous, more extreme, simply because that was what is being rewarded both in terms of eyeballs and then very, very obviously in terms of revenue. Because if you're a YouTube creator, if you get demonetized, you know, that's your income gone for the for the month. Whereas if you do something that's great, you might earn 20,000 pounds off a video. And so you are very, very alive and sensitive to what the market wants from you. Um, and, you know, the, the, the great thing about bundled journalism, the journalism that I came up with, is that a traditional daily newspaper had some bits that were quite, you know, were lost leaders, like foreign reporting is incredibly expensive and very poorly read, whereas sports coverage, very well read, horoscopes, you know, racing tips, all of these kind of things, and you bundled it all together. And the internet has unbundled that so people can only have and do the bits that are really sexy and and revenue generating. And that's been, a, again, that's just a huge change to that kind of media and economic ecosystem that we have, really. Mm. I, I kind of want to spend a little bit more time on this idea of the decline of religion as well, because it's something that Adam and I have been thinking a lot about in terms of living in the absence of religion and how it, it, it leaves us more ripe for these types of internet relationships. Um, and something we've been thinking of... Not that the unbundling of news and the current state of our industry is not something that we regularly uh, talk about. Oh, no, of course, yeah. And we'll, we'll probably get back to that too. But but I, I do think there's something about it, it, religion, and I think you bring this up a lot in your uh, Church of Social Justice program, right? It's not just that religion provides some sort of medium for spiritual conversation or thinking about inner life or meaning or purpose the community aspect of it is very fundamental, right? The, maybe the structures of community as well, the routine of it. Um, and I was actually curious because I, I know that from that program that you said you grew up raised in the Catholic religion. Adam grew up in Israel in a non-religious household, but in Jerusalem where you, you can't escape religion, so religion is ever present. And I grew up without religion at all from parents who rejected religion. But I think at least and I speak for Adam and I because I can't speak for you, Helen, but I mean, we still felt this kind of lack, this lack of meaning, structure, moral compass that we felt like we had to figure out how to fill. 
And I'm curious from your perspective, like I assume, do you think that there's a difference between people who were raised with religion and a structure and then lost it versus people who never had that structure at all? Or are we just all striving for the same thing, even if we don't have the kind of touch points of what religion gave us earlier? I think there's probably a bit of both in the sense that I think if you grew up with religion, um, that you maybe are still attached to the rituals of it, of your childhood, and they they give you a sense of kind of peace or stillness, or, you know, they're just nostalgic. But I think there's also something that's fairly universal. One of the interesting conversations I've had this week actually was with um, a Satanist who is an atheist, but is therefore involved in a religion that is all about social justice. And I said, that's really interesting. How did you come to that? And he said, well, I was brought up in a very heavily Christian family. And, you know, I want, I knew that I wanted that spiritual connection, that spirituality, but I'm not a deist. I don't believe in God. So I, I went looking basically for a vehicle for that. And that this is how you, apparently, this is what leads you to, to Satanism. And I found that was really interesting because actually the, one of the reactions to the piece was people being quite offended by the comparison between social justice and religion. So it's interesting to talk to somebody who said, you know, I kind of went out shopping essentially. I need religion in my life. And I think that the established religions are are bad and I don't really believe in God. So, you know, I wanted to find myself a replacement for that. So I found that a really honest and self-aware reflection. And I think that's probably true for a lot of us. The impulse for me making that documentary in the first place was someone saying to me, you know, do you think feminism has replaced religion for you? Um, In a way that implied that she thought I would find this an incredibly offensive question. And I didn't actually, I found it a very thought provoking one, because I think, you know, there is a sense of kind of higher purpose about some of those social justice movements. That means not only have you got community, but also that you're striving together to make the world a better place. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and then there's all that much more overt stuff where we talk about, you know, the kind of rituals and taboos and religious concepts like, you know, I do think white and male privilege do kind of echo original sin in the sense of they're an idea of something that you're, you're born with. And then you have to kind of strive to overcome. And it just might be that, you know, we've had religion for thousands of years and these things are kind of built very deep into us. And, and also because particularly in America, you know, it's a very religious culture, whether you're personally religious or not, that these are the frames that you're going to end up analyzing stuff through and, and thinking, you know, you're going to think, oh, this is just like church. Oh, you know, even the words we use for things like evangelizing, you know, they are all coming from a particular set of traditions and experiences. I want to spend a second on what you mean by religion, because I think for a lot of people, even when they make this comparison of uh, social justice as religiosity, they think of religion in the context of 2000 aughts, new atheism, that stank of religion as fundamentalism, right? Religion is hidebound, the source of inquisition and small mindedness and intellectual intolerance. Whereas as you find it thought provoking, it's because you're seeing it as something more. So I want to let you define what is it that you found interesting in religion insofar as its absence is generating this universal yearning for in the current search for a higher purpose. Yeah, I mean, you know, let me just be clear that this is a question that perplexes anthropologists and sociologists. You know, they never cut the argument about like, what is a religion? And then classically, you know, should we talk about religions? And are we talking too much about Abrahamic faiths? And, you know, all of that stuff. It is a really lively site of academic debate. So I'm not going to pretend to have a definitive answer on what a religion is. But I think... Oh, let me be clear. This is a question that we have engaged with 
from our earliest days of the podcast, our first two interviews were with historian Tom Holland and sociologist Tomer Persico. And between the two of them, I think we've spent five to six hours pondering about this question. So I, I'm definitely not turning to you to seek the definitive answer, <laughs> but I'm interested in, in how you approach it, you know, as you're, as you're trying to make these comparisons in your personal life and in your journalism. Sure. And I think there is a case for saying something is religious in the sense of not just ideological, but implying something sort of slightly some spiritual, some idea of sort of being saved. That's a kind of really interesting concept. And also the rituals, you know, and to, and sort of ritual and cleanliness and taboos, I think are also a big part of religion. You know, and I think when I talk about, and to be clear, I'm not, I'm not only being positive about this. I agree with you. People do when they make that kind of snap comparison, like social justice, like a religion, you know, um, like in John McQuarter's woke racism, he's very clear that he's talking about sort of, he means it's fundamentalist and it means you shouldn't even just talk to these people because they're irrational. I guess that's the word that people hear is is supernatural and irrational. And I, to some extent, I do mean that in that I think that political, that these are more than political systems have created sort of unsayable taboos, right? That to me are quite religious in the sense that there are forms of words that you're simply not supposed to use. And we're all supposed to understand that those are appalling and they may be very, you know, one of the examples that I, I've been thinking about that I'm, I'm really interested about is the idea of dead naming, which is the idea of using, you know, a transgender person's previous name. Now, 20 years ago, no one thought that was a problem, right? They didn't think that there was, you know, there was someone was called one thing and then they were called something else. And that was, that was kind of perfectly reasonable and you wouldn't need to hide that. Now in progressive circles, there is an enormous taboo on that. And it has been created incredibly quickly and it is enforced and referenced as if it would be incredibly obvious. Now, it's very interesting to me because I personally, in my own life, know at least a couple of trans people who have absolutely no hang up about their previous name at all. They don't subscribe to the feeling that it's a kind of magic word that that upsets them. Whereas other people clearly do feel incredibly strongly about that. But that to me has a slightly religious echo, right? That there is a sort of power in the word, in the name, um, and yeah, it's something that you find in the, the, the discussion of Yahweh, right? Like the idea about whether or not some names are simply unsayable. Um, and that to me is really interesting because I think in a way, for those of us who are on the outside, it's maybe helps you understand how strongly people feel about some tenets of social justice, right? If they feel them as strongly as anybody felt about, about religious incantations or words or scripture. It's just interesting. I, I listened to a podcast a few weeks ago by, by the History Chicks, and they were talking about uh, the history of Pocahontas. And Pocahontas had multiple names. Uh, she had her given birth name, which in according to her tribe, uh, the idea is that only your closest inner circle knows that name. And it is, it's something that you don't share with the broader world because it's kind of something sacred that you hold for just your inner circle. Pocahontas was like her public-facing name. Um, and then when she uh, converted to Christianity, she took on the name Rebecca. Um, and the the reason that uh, we kind of know that she forsook, I guess, her tribe because they never came to rescue her when she was kidnapped is that she had told them her original name. And so it was like a signifier to her tribe that... Uh, in like I have told them this this sacred name and it no longer it no longer defines who I am. I am now Rebecca. And I just found that a very interesting use of 
using name to identify where you are in the context of of how you want to present yourself. Um, and it just it just reminded me of that when you were talking about dead yeah. naming. No, but names are entirely about power. Who gets to name what is uh, is entirely about power. So there's a very brilliant Brian Friel play about Ireland in the 19th century called Translations, in which the English turn up and they decide that they're going to rename. You know, not only are they driving out the Irish language, but they're also going to rename all the towns and make you use the English name for them. And it's a kind of classic example of of colonialism, you know, the way that, that Welsh was driven out from Welsh schools in the 19th century. And, you know, in, in Japan, you can buy a better name after your death, right? Your, your family can buy you a, a better name. So we do have these, you know, all the fact that traditionally through history, women have been expected to take their husband's name on marriage and you become part of his family. So this is what I mean. I think it's really interesting that, you know, that you can talk about ritual and ritual still has such a place in a, in a modern world that can seem so secular on its surface. And yet lots of these things that you prod, you know, do seem to gesture, like you say, like like to Pocahontas, to these much deeper concepts underneath. Go back to The Tempest. Shakespeare's The Tempest. Caliban is rebelling against his own name, being forced upon him by his oppressor. And you're right. And the beginning of, um, sorry, and the end of The Crucible as well, right? So John Proctor's great lament at the end of The Crucible is, give me my name. I must have my name. You know, you can take everything else, but have my, have my name. So you're right. It does make for some incredibly powerful art. Right. That's the, also the X in Malcolm X, indicating that he has no authentic origin anymore. And he had been deracinated and cannot return to his ancestral origins, nor can he tolerate the colonial Europeanized lie that has been forced on him. Naming is inextricably linked to power struggles. Going back as far as cultures have been interacting and superimposing themselves on each other. First thing that David does when he conquers Jerusalem in the Old Testament, is rename it. Naming is self-assertion, it's power, it's ownership. So it's a fascinating topic, but it can also go frustratingly far insofar as language goes beyond being a dialogue about power and ownership into something more mystical, the word as cosmic terror that can fall upon the speaker. There's a history of that in Judaism, as you mentioned, because in Judaism, the world was created by speech and therefore language is revered. But I also see it as a very American thing. And maybe that's because the Puritans in shaping the DNA of the U.S. have relied heavily on scripture, especially the Old Testament and Jewish mysticism, or maybe not. But the result is that we have a culture that quakes at the idea of uttering certain words, whether they're uh, slurs or four-letter words or uh, the N-word. So I wonder if you, if you agree that the, the reason that the U.S. seems to be more language-obsessed has something to do with the, the unique way in which religious revivalism took shape here compared to Europe I think I would definitely agree with the um, proposition that America is a more religious culture. But I also think it's about the kind of idea of the American language internet, right? So we're all living on the English language internet, but it's actually really the American language internet. America is six times bigger in population size um, than Britain. Um, so we're all living in the kind of shadow. And that means, you know, the same, the problem the Académie Française has about the fact that France is not generating enough new words. And so people are saying le weekend instead of la fin de la semaine or whatever it is. Um, is the, is the same issue is that America is so big and so culturally powerful that it is the one that is generating all the new vocabulary. It is the, the 
accent in which these conversations are being had. So I, I think I would probably attribute it most to that. It's also interesting, though, in, in the U.S., though, because I think these new words emerge, and but different, even within the U.S., different pockets are cottoning on to the definition before others. And so you have these like con- constant o- lags and o- and then overlaps of what the word even means. Like I'm thinking fake news, for example. I remember having a conversation with a taxi cab driver. It was the first time I'd heard the term. And he was like, what do you think about this fake news? And I was like, oh. And I took it at a very literal definition. I was like, well, there's definitely a problem with fact-checking in journalism. And like, this is an issue. But I didn't realize that there was a whole, not only a whole definition that I was missing, but a whole culture that had emerged around it. And so I feel like even within even within America, there's so many pockets that the, the language is, it's hard to keep hold of what even is the accent? Where is it coming from? Where Where is it going? And and are we all Yeah, and I think up? it's one of the big, big challenge for journalism. One of the reasons I wanted to do the new gurus for the BBC, you know, is that is addressing a big mainstream audience who don't know maybe what some of these subcultures are like. Whereas, you know, I think for people who are very online capped up, they can, this can all seem incredibly obvious to them. But, you know, I've got friends who are really, you know, well-educated men and women about town, but they don't know what like a simp is. You know, that's just not a word that's going to have any any resonance to them um, or whatever it might be. Like, so this is what I think you're right. And I also think, you know, there's a kind of enormous flourishing online, but everything can be very hermetic. And I felt like that myself. Like I consider myself to be extremely online. But even when we came into the crypto episode, I had some vague headline thoughts about crypto. I vaguely knew what the blockchain was. You know, I knew... Um, the kind of headline stuff. Uh, but but I was surprised just how massive an industry was. And then, it, and then it began to feel a bit like I was in a kind of Arctic sea. And I could see all these little bits of ice, but I had absolutely no idea how, how big the icebergs were under the surface. And I think that's probably almost everybody. No one is... No, I mean, lots of people are very online, but it's very hard to be across everything online. You would have to be like kind of near... You know, you have to be plugged into the machine. Uh, it would be extraordinary. You know, you made me think about the difficulty in navigating for people to navigate the real world meeting new people versus trying to figure out where they stand online on contentious issues having to call their words carefully to avoid stumbling on language traps that that might make them lose their heads and while we are completely aware of it happening online, we can already see it being projected into the real world with people sometimes not even fully capable of evaluating what the consequences of getting into those conversations would be with real people, which you would presume would be easier when you can read social cues and uh, have the benefit of face-to-face interaction. But you never know because now you were afraid that you might be stumbling into a, a psychopath who might be recording you or just waiting in, in the uh, corner of the room to uh, tweet about you. And I, so I have a friend who's younger, um, a, a recent college graduate who has some public profile. And um, I remember once we got into a conversation about Joe Rogan and it felt like he had to uh, litmus test the room first and throw a few platitudes about, you know, Joe Rogan. He's kind of crazy, right? But then something in his tone or in the gaps implied that he's actually trying to push back against it a little bit or to, to open up certain conversations that he thinks should be able to be discussed. But 
he's just not sure if people are comfortable with it. So he's using <laughs> Joe Rogan as a, as a feeler to gauge where everyone else in the room was before he could start op- talking openly. And I think that when <laughs> you start relying on these touchstone topics to to test first whether you should speak freely, we've crossed some sort of line, a very bad line. You think that in face-to-face interaction, you should be free of these concerns. If a conversation starts that people are uncomfortable with, they should be able to say, uh, maybe let's switch the topic. Maybe that's not the, the right space for this. But because online, you have so much stored energy just waiting to be erupted by somebody waiting accidentally into the wrong neighborhood, it ends up translating to the real world with, especially with people with public profile, like my friend, who then just remain constantly on alert about what they can or can't say. So I guess I think that normal language, human language, is also currently in crisis because of this importation of American internet language to real life and around the world. Well, you say that, but I've got a slightly more positive view, which is the fact that there are, like, at some point, it does seem to be like every man has been allocated a podcast. Uh, that There are just a huge number of these podcasts that go on for hours and hours and hours and hours. And they are the place, I think, where you see the people having those difficult kind of conversations. Joe Rogan is a really good example, right? Because I think he, uh, he and J.K. Rowling are two great exemplars of this, like, oh, everyone knows they're problematic. And you have to go, these are two of the most popular people in the whole world. So clearly quite a lot of people actually disagree with you because otherwise Spotify wouldn't have paid however many million dollars it was for the show and it wouldn't be the top first rated. People like Joe Rogan, you're, if you actually, if you think there's something wrong with Joe Rogan, you're the minority and you have to make your case. But there is this assumption that, oh no, everyone knows that. And you know, I was thinking about this and the same thing is true of, of, of J.K. Rowling, right? The last book went straight into the top of the bestseller. She's got like five of the top bestselling, um, you know, children's books ever published. And people are still queuing up for the shops and all that kind of stuff. And yet you would, you know, if you spent too much time on Twitter, you would think, oh no, we all know that no one, you know, that we've all... But wait, I, I want to push back on this because I think that the Joe Rogan type podcasting, of which I guess largely speaking, we're part of, has grown in a self-selecting way as part of this subculture responding to this speech crisis that we're talking about, right? The medium has become associated with being able to have long-form conversations um, about, and I'm not going to use the word heterodox because it is taboo on this podcast, (laughs) matters that, that are otherwise cause for anxiety. This is the space for that. It's a space that evolved in part to answer the need. Um, but that doesn't mean that the initial fears outside of this space have been resolved. The people who go on podcasts to have these conversations have already decided to take on the, the risks involved. But what about all the others who have it? For many people who want to be part of these conversations, but are afraid of the consequences, maybe because they have a semi-public profile they can just decide to not go on podcasts in order to avoid those risks. But what do they do when they're in public or when they're um, in, in, in a group and they're just not sure who might be the secret sociopath in the corner of the room waiting with their fingers itching on their phone to burn somebody? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's true. I think being having any kind of public profile does inevitably make you slightly more cautious about, you know, um, who you trust 
which is kind of a really horrible thing, actually. It's one of the things that I like. In the real world, right? But but I but also on. I mean, I don't really see any distinction between the real world and online. I'm afraid, like they have wholly blurred into one another for me. Right, but that's the point, right? Things have merged, or at least blurred, between internet world and real world to the point where, sure, all uh, people have been endowed with a podcast, but it is essentially a carve out for the people who want to take those risks. And it sort of defines your community in a very specific way to which many people might not choose to opt in because they have a different risk tolerance or uh, just want to live their lives. And in the meantime, the real world follows Twitter's image, which is a dark image. I think it less so than it did. I think that really peaked during like 2021. Um, and I think, you know, I wrote a piece about kind of whatever you want to call it, woke capitalism. I imagine, is that a banned word as well? I feel like it's, it's a banned word for me. I try and put it in very heavy quote marks. Capitalism? But like, uh, no, yes, also capitalism. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but like the, the cancel culture, another probably banned word, but um, was just actually mostly corporate arse covering, right? Actually, what the most the engine of capital of cancel culture was three people complain and a company decides it would rather not have the bad publicity and jettisons you. You know, and the same thing happened. There were a series of really unfair incidents where people got, you know, my um, colleague Yasha Monk wrote about a poor guy who was accused by someone else of making an OK sign, which was then taken to be a white supremacist sign, and 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 this blew up and he got fired. And he, there's the quote from him was really moving because it was just like, I don't know what I could have done differently. Like, how could I protect myself from this? This is like being struck by lightning. You know, you just could not predict it and it could happen to anyone at any time. And that was really chilling. But I think that to some extent there has now been a pushback and companies now get barracked from the other side because there's such a big anti-cancer culture movement that to some extent the knee-jerk reaction, you know, has now not become the part, course of least resistance. It's, I mean, I'm not saying it's cured. I still think there's a lot of that kind of very corporate panic that goes on. Um but, you know, it's again, like you look at Netflix, you know, what is the what is the most watched special? It's, it's Ricky Gervais, it's David Chappelle, it's Jimmy Carr. When you ask actual audiences what they want, what they want is the stuff that they've been told that they can't have. You know, it's like a first lesson of parenting is you must never, you know, tell your children that sweets are amazing, but you can't have them because they're just going to want them more. And And I think that's been, you know, that's something I think is, we're currently going through a sort of cycle of working that out in the culture about the fact that people are rebelling. As soon as they've been told they can't have something, they kind of want it more. But the thing that was revealing about this, I mean, discovering that corporate America had no spine surprised no one, I think, right? Well, I think it did, actually. I think it did. I think it's a part, I think, well, uh, no, I'm not exactly, I think you're right in that sense. But I think that progressive activists got a bit carried away with the sense that finally they had got a weapon that they could use against big business that they had never had before. Right? Right. That's the bit where... And ironically, achieved through capitalism. Yeah, right. And they could now wield capitalism kind of against itself by by basically shaming companies into doing stuff. And so in some cases, that was probably, you know, a good thing, like some people rejecting sponsorship from fossil fuel companies or whatever it might have been. But it, it, it was this... I was What I was meaning is it was strange to see the left take this cudgel up so enthusiastically, you know, and, and kind of... I remember again, I think it was Wesley Yang's piece pointed out that, um, you know, who are the first people that normally get attacked by when you have fire at will, which is the case in many American 
states. It's 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 union busting legislation, right? It's stop people unionizing in the workplace. Why would leftists cheer making it easy to fire easier to fire people? That has been something that has been a campaign of organized labor throughout the 20th century. Is about making it harder to fire people because it puts more power into employees. So that that's the bit I meant. I, the strangeness of the fact that the left decided this was a, a brilliant tool to use is is still slightly weird to me. Oh yeah, no, that's a great point. Um. I would just say that what surprised me, and I guess also didn't fully surprise me because I have a cynical view of humankind, but somehow I keep being surprised, is how far people that you'd think are well-adjusted or you thought were well-adjusted would go in these acts of... uh, performative abuse and it's not even performative because it has real world consequences and I'm thinking about people that I know people that I uh, uh, considered friends or or at least sane respectable people how much pleasure they derive in this public cruelty in the seeking out and dragging out of fellow humans sometimes strangers and sometimes people familiar to them and at some point, you just wonder if the psychopathy really is the purpose of it all. And the ideology is a Dexter-like excuse for sadistic self-gratification. Okay, but that kind of takes you back to religion, right? There's a brilliant book by Terry Pratchett called Small Gods, in which is set in a theocracy, in which it turns out that only one person actually still believes in the religion. And yet it has this huge apparatus, including Inquisition. And, you know, I, it's all, you might, you might say that about communism too, right? How many people really are committed to this ideology versus how many people are working it to get to their advantage? And I felt a bit the same about that, which is that how many people really believed what they were saying versus how many people had found the perfect tool to do the things they wanted to anyway. But the thing is, it's interesting, particularly when you look at it in the American context, is you have to some extent see it as kind of twin reactive polarization because a similar dynamic did happen on the right over Trump. Anne Applebaum, my colleague at The Atlantic, wrote a brilliant book called Twilight of Democracy. And she starts in like 1990s where it's, you know, in Eastern Europe and everything is so, you know, exciting. The idea that the Berlin Wall's fallen, you know, you're having all this liberation, all the communism's fallen. And she's all these people that she's with at this party celebrating the end of communism. You know, she charts their journey now. And some of them are now in authoritarian parties in Poland. You know, they support Viktor Orban, an authoritarian in Hungary. They supported Donald Trump an authoritarian in America. And, and she kind of goes, hey, what, what went wrong? Like, where did all these people who were, you know, I thought were on my side, I thought were liberals. It turned out that their problem wasn't authoritarianism, it was left-wing authoritarianism they were excluded from. And it turns out right-wing authoritarianism was completely fine by them. So I think when you talk about that disillusionment, I definitely understand what you're, what you mean. But I, I guess I won't, I'm just not disillusioned with those people because I didn't think they were my tribe beforehand, right? I, I always consider myself to be someone on the left. So I think that there are probably people on the other side of politics who, for whom, who have had the you know, exact inverse you know, mirror image journey of the last five years. It is, has been a time where some people have become intensely polarized. Before letting you go, Vanessa, I just want to clarify that for me, it was never about people on my quote-unquote tribe acting in ways that shocked me, in part because I have such a knee-jerk adverse reaction to the idea of being associated with a tribe 
So for me, the shock was really seeing people on, on either tribe exhibiting inexhaustible desire for cruelty, this depths of sadism <laughs> that I just couldn't imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, well, maybe we'll come back to this when we, if we get to the intellectual dark web because there's a similar interesting trajectories that have happened there. But, um, but no, I want to get back to gurus. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that Adam and I were thinking about as we were thinking about asking you about the gurus you've uncovered and, and how they operate in the 21st century is um, the question of what's the difference between a guru and a genius? And we recently had a conversation with Eli Lake about Kanye West. And Eli's stance is that he considers Kanye West a musical genius. And no matter what Kanye says in terms of politics, anti-Semitism, he is still going to keep listening to the music because he considers it a work of genius. He considers it a great contribution to the culture. Um, and he thinks that you can divorce... Me. Oh, listener, if you could only see Helen's expression right now. <laughs> no, it's, um, I think I, I actually, I actually agree with that. I'm, if you can see behind me, um, I've got all these books because the book that I'm currently writing is on genius. Right. So I've got very strong opinions on right. genius. Um, and I think there is a case for saying that Kanye is incredibly musically talented. I remember the, when the college dropout came out and just thinking this is like just brilliant. Right. And so um, I listened to it an enormous amount of time and I don't have a problem still. It's not like I've gone and burned all my records because he's now saying I love Hitler. I mean, I probably wouldn't listen to an album that was like that because right. it would just be, you wouldn't want to play that in your car. People would <laughs> would think you were bizarre. But you know what I mean? Like I, I think there is a, you know, nobody's is perfect. And one of the big conversations is like, what's the statute of limitations? You know, the fact that Paul Gauguin was sleeping with underage teenage girls in Tahiti. Um, you know, Picasso got adopted a girl from an orphanage, did pornographic drawings of her and then sent her back again. She was 13. There is, you know, you go back through this and, and like every, almost all great art and great achievement has got some smelly bit in the kind of foundation of it so you you have you cannot take a hygienic approach to achievement and art it's simply impossible that said i also think that genius is not an objective quality and actually mostly what it is is a story and it is often a story though of double-edgedness and kenny is a very good example right is he a better musician than taylor swift i would say no and i know this is going to be like one of these things people are going to write in about but actually he is regarded as more of a genius because we have this romantic idea of the genius as having uh, extracting a human cost on you that it drives you mad that was the idea behind the romantic poets behind you know uh you know around the time of sort of byron byron being very byron classic example byron is like the kanye west of of his century and the idea being that there is a price to be paid for exceptional achievement and so i would say actually in the case of the demon of inspiration sitting on your shoulder Right. That, that, that it bolsters the myth of the genius of Kanye, the fact that he is going out there and doing these completely outrageous things, living this completely outrageous lifestyle. We want our exceptional achievers to be weird in some way. Um, and so that is a perpetual problem that will, that will never resolve itself because we don't want boring icons. Right. But there's something about their, their production of art, which I think is fundamentally different from the way we think about gurus because you you and I can have a relationship with the art that we can separate from the from the artist right like something profoundly moving or transformational can can be the result from someone deeply problematic or with terrible political views and i think that's where eli is getting at where is you you don't you don't have to take the politics with the art when you're talking about a guru they are not selling a a a 
they may be selling an artistic something that, product. They're not selling something that's external to them. They're it, by and large selling themselves and a, pers- a personality. And a holistic and, perspective, a yeah. holistic lifestyle that, that actually ends up I- influencing your politics, your morals. Like there's, there's a... But also they embody it, right? They, the claim, which some of the geniuses made. Someone like Picasso is a good example of somebody who embodied his art. You know, it was the idea it was very passionate Latin. You know, it was uncontrollable. It was masculine, all that sort of stuff. But yes, the, specifically in the case of the, the, the gurus, you know, and often many of them overclaim their outside achievements outside of the, the gurus. But many of them are just like, you know, I'm looking, I'm thinking in the intellectual space are actually kind of mid-level academics. And there are many, many, many very good and mid-level academics, right? But there is a difference between them and the kind of ones who are selling themselves as, as kind of intellectual guides through the muck, right? There is a kind of certain spiritual leader. That was the thing that I really, when I kept thinking about who, who we're focusing on, it was spiritual leaders. Um, and I would say that, you know, not every genius, lots of geniuses, the, the mythology of genius is embroidered by being a recluse, you know, like Emily Dickinson. It's all about the fact that she locked herself away and no one saw her. The modern day equivalent of Emily Dickinson would obviously not be on YouTube pumping out eight hours of content a, a week. Um, I don't know. Bo Burnham had that whole inside uh, documentary that did very well. <laughs> I guess that's true. Now you can write your poems with lots of M dashes in them from, yeah, and then just read them out on, online. But you know what I mean? Like that they, like the person is the product with a guru, right? In a way that you can't. It's not this. I mean, that that is different from a genius. A genius can make things that are external to them, but you know, they, geniuses actually often they don't have they don't write great books, they don't you know they don't create great art. Actually, the product is their YouTube videos or their podcasts, things that are essentially kind of ephemeral, is what I'm saying. Like, what will remain of Jordan Peterson in in twenty or thirty or forty or fifty years? Not a great deal more than the remain of us mere mortals. I would suggest. It makes me sad when I think, I don't know if it applies to Peterson, but so many of these people, I wonder if there is just this profound opportunity cost for these talents that could have been utilized differently or those people not swept up in the game of becoming petty pundits. Are we losing out on creative works that could have been of deeper consequence and longevity. We used to lose artists to reckless drug abuse and over-elaborate masturbation techniques. And now we lose them to Twitter commentary. And, you know, it goes to this thing that I keep coming back to, uh, which is really more a feeling than a provable claim. But it seems that there hasn't been great intellectual innovation in the past decade, um, and maybe even longer. There's a lot of mind stagnation that maybe it's imagined, and uh, and maybe it's really the result of oversaturation. But it feels like ideas don't have the the time they need to really develop and as a result our conversations and our perceptions of ourselves stay at this shallow repetitive angry level and fail to capture the deeper changes that we're undergoing 
So the gurus that we talked about, and even some of the more rigorous studies and explorations of our uh, uh, moment seem to be all using the same vocabulary, talking about the same things with just ever so slightly different points of view. And with the rate of political and technological convulsions, you'd think there'd be more to say that, you know, would shatter my current perception of things and realign it. And But I, I, there hasn't been much. And I can think of Martin Gurry maybe. But, but what else? I, yeah, I, know, I think there's something into that. But one of the problems is there's nothing wrong with being a popularizer. Like, to some extent, that's my job, right? Is to go away and read academic papers and talk to people and then kind of think about it and, and present it in a, in a mainstream friendly way. So I don't... Oh, hey, wait, Vanessa and I are journalists. We take the works of others and um, crunch them into something more shallow and digestible. I'm very proud of my uh, profession uh, and glad to do that. But you do need the people working on a different time scale, you know, immersing themselves in the deeper questions. We as journalists need the thoughts of others to be uh, deeper and richer so that we can regurgitate ruin and mischaracterize it. But at the moment, what do we have? Uh, we have anti-racism on the left and we have this common good Catholic integralism um, on the right. And these are both very, very shallow movements, intellectual movements, but then that's what we have as building blocks for our adversarial uh, media world. But that does bring us to intellectual dialogue quite well, because episode five of the series is David Fuller, who worked for a mainstream news organization, he worked for Channel 4 News. And he expressed pretty much what you're expressing there, which was that in your day-to-day -day work as a journalist, you aren't asking, you know, what fills the hole that God once had or whatever it might be, these kind of very deep and meaningful questions. And that's why he was initially captivated by Jordan Peterson's work to the extent of leaving his job in Channel 4 News and setting up a YouTube channel. And he went through a kind of, again, I think something that probably you're familiar with, which is then a slight level of disillusionment that he had been promised that these people would be thinking incredibly deep thoughts. And then it really seemed that actually what they were doing was going on each other's podcasts and moaning about the people who've been mean to them on the internet. And they're like, look, I've, I've done that. I think we've all done that. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it, but but it, you're right. It did because... It, there was no engine for reflection and the idea that, you know, I've, I interviewed, I remember interviewing Brian Green, the theoretical physicist, right? He's a string theorist. I felt for about five minutes that I understood string theory after speaking to him. It was very exciting. Gone now. But he said to me, and I said to him about being a public intellectual, and he said, well, look, you know, I see myself as someone who I go away in the trenches for four years doing research, and then I come out and I tell everybody what I've done. And you know what? Three or four years is about the amount of time of thinking and writing that you need to come out with a book that has got a substantive statement. You cannot be producing one YouTube video a week and be like having incredibly deep thoughts. The, the content economy is just now completely weighs against the level of reflection you need to have to do proper intellectual work. Yeah. And there is no funding for it. This is the frustrating thing. Like, who's the person that's going to go and fund you to do uh, four years of, I don't know, investigative journalism? Like, there's no... The institutions are are less and fewer and far between that are willing to invest in that kind of content making because the returns are just... Are just yeah, and it's, you're right. And, and in the cold economic terms, it's entirely the, the correct 
decision. So you end up with like great nonprofit organizations doing that kind of work and um, and philanthropic ventures. But yeah, as a kind of capitalist enterprise, it's it's not one that is self-sustaining. And it's true for publishers too, because I, I mean, I, I don't know what deals you were able to strike, but from my familiarity with the publishing industry at, at, at the current world of nonfiction expects the author to produce a new work, a new book every year to year and a half in order to turn a profit. And that's, that's just not realistic for in, in terms of a timescale to really work out a valuable, meaningful perspective, not to mention strong prose um, with some exceptions. Um, but the result really is the nonfiction market being flooded with these middling to garbage columns that have been artificially stretched over 500 pages. I, I absolute pet hate the books and the smart thinking section. And you pick it up and you're like, this font's very big. These margins are very big. And you think this is 5,000 <laughs> words of content has been artificially padded to be $9.99 worth of sales, right? Again, it's just the fact that there, we have a model that like, that's what a book is and that's what a book costs and whether or not you've written a whole book's worth of... But yes, to say that, like, I... I've done okay with my books in, in British terms, at least my first one is only, it, it doesn't have an American publisher because it's, it's a British history of feminism. So, but you know, if I couldn't have lived on that money on the time that it took me to write it, it was a, it was a side hustle. And it was something that I wanted to do because I really wanted to spend the time with that material and think about it. But yeah, it's not a, you couldn't live in London on the amount of money that I earned from that book. It makes me think if, if the, if genius is going to go extinct, basically, and we're only going to get gurus from now on, because there was a time <laughs> when, when you know, artists could go, I don't know, be a bohemian and go off and they or they had a patron or stuff and they could work on their art. And nowadays, if the business models are all around consistent, consistent output, that is antithetical to the kind of art that we considered capital A art. And I wonder if it's just going, we're just going to get gurus now because of the incentives. It's just going to be, um, here's a thing I'm creating. Here's my lifestyle. Here's the sandwich I had, whatever. Here's my political opinion. And we're just going to sh- keep on this shift and never actually have the, or, or at least it's going to be such a rare thing to have art. I'm going to make you feel better about everything, Vanessa, by saying Rembrandt, one of the greatest portrait painters in history, didn't like painting portraits. He loved painting mythological subjects like loads of people chasing a deer that was actually Diana, goddess of the hunt. He painted the portraits because that's what Dutch middle class, upper middle class merchant society would pay him a load of money for. So in that case, the cold commercial incentives accidentally gave us perhaps one of the greatest portrait painters ever lived. So a note of cautious optimism there, added to which the fact is that I do wonder whether or not one of the periods that I'm... Three cheers for capitalism. But there have always been you know, <laughs> patrons throughout history. You know, Shakespeare was writing for a commercial audience, right? At the time that Shakespeare was writing, poetry was the elevated art form and drama was the thing that you wrote for people who were also fighting a bear in the pit. Right, right. And it's just very... We're just very lucky that he was a, a genius and that he managed to t- turn that commercial art form into something sublime. So I'm not as downbeat as you are. But I also think there is a case for saying, there's a paper that came out very recently saying innovation has slowed. And one of the ideas might be that we picked a lot of low-hanging fruit, particularly at the the end of the 19th century. And we're now in an era of very high specialization, where you just have to get through a lot of knowledge before you can then advance a field. 
But, you know, we have made some incredible, like mRNA vaccines are an incredible advance. The way that AI has come on in the last year is an incredible advance. Um, electric cars, you know, things like this. There are still very exciting things happening. It's just that there's so much stuff happening all the time that it can kind of be harder to spot, I guess. Well, in that sense, our advancements in the field of AI are probably going to make the whole genius question moot. Well, that's a whole, that's another thing. But I'm not sure about that, though, because it's fundamentally imitative, right? Even though it's called generative AI, right, I think right. that's the problem is that it's trained on this huge corpus of stuff. What it isn't is truly creative. And that's the bit that we still don't have any explanation for. You know, what is creativity? An argument that I keep hearing from people whose livelihoods are going to be directly impacted by some of these new generative AIs is that it might actually end up being good for the top percentile genius class, however you define it, while devastating for the creative class, for most of the creative class, because it's going to shatter jobs from the the medium to low skill levels while still requiring somebody at these um, higher generative levels to uh, feed the database, but also to call out the output from the AI. So you're actually going to have a, a much stricter pyramid. Well, that might does make sense, right? If you think about the early days of animation and, and Disney and the fact that each frame had to be hand-drawn and then, then we moved to computer animation. And that hasn't stopped people making movies. It hasn't stopped people saying that Pixar, you know, is a genius company. Maybe you do just move the creativity like up one level of technical ability. But yeah, I think I agree with you because I think there is a thing that we should feel very sympathetic to the people who are being disrupted, even when the disruption might be exciting. It's, I would be, if I were currently an illustrator, I would feel quite, quite tense right now that my job was going to be eaten and that, you know, I mean, I always feel this about journalism, right? Like, you know, you sort of feel like, you, which was the kind of bows that they fired in England and then they suddenly invented the much better bow. And then like all the guys who'd spent their entire military careers training to fire a you know, long bow were suddenly extinct. And that will happen, I'm sure, many times a century. Right, and maybe the premium for originality will go up. And I was going to ask earlier, do you think the myth of genius is a hindrance to innovation or a help to innovation? I think it's both and primarily probably a help in the sense that it gives us stories to tell. And it also gives people who are kind of worker bees um, a story to tell themselves about why they're letting themselves be exploited. Hmm. And that probably sounds incredibly cynical. But you know what I mean? Like if you're the feeling that you're engaged in some grand project, that you're working for Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or whoever it might be, and then like they're a kind of great mind probably is what helps you think that you're going to work that 14 hour day, you know, and that's one of the things that I really struggle with in this book is the idea about genius as kind of exploitation of resources and like being a parasite to some extent. It probably is a help, but probably in a way that is quite unwholesome mm. to confront, actually. That's actually something I think about a lot because I've I've come from kind of more corporate gigs and I've done more communications consulting to make money. And it's something I do feel implicated in. I'm essentially creating a narrative around a company to sell a grand vision. And every day you're confronted with, uh, is this is this vision actually in line with what we're doing on a day-to-day basis? Are we moving towards it? Or am I just selling a, a pretty picture and then duping? Am I helping and duping the world? It's something I've had to think about a lot, actually. It's funny that we need to uh, have this ideal of oracular innovation 
embodied in in a single person in order to really develop trust and um, and ultimately to submit. But it makes total sense if you think about strongmen in politics, because you know there's an immense appeal to strongmen in politics, and you can see it in the idea that. Ideas, you know, decisions being made in a kind of bureaucracy that are incredibly unfair. You don't know who to hate. Whereas if you know that there's one person making the decisions, then like that's it. And it might be unjust, but then, you know, there might be, you might be able to work your way up into the favor of that one person. Like it's, I think it's appealing for the same reason that conspiracy theories are appealing, right? Which is that it posits that someone is in control and therefore you might be able in some way to, you know, infiltrate it or topple it or whatever it is, rather than the idea that the world is a kind of screaming ball of chaos hurtling around the sun, which I think is kind of quite hard to comprehend and like feel sane about. Right. It's not just the utilitarian aspect that uh, it gives you a person to uh, topple or confront, but it just makes it comprehensible. Mm. It's it's human-sized. I talk a lot about the idea about making things human-sized and the stories that tend to go viral or like if you want to try and bring down a company, if you're doing investigative journalism into their malpractice, you have to find the detail that makes it human-sized. I remember I was judging a journalism award a couple of years ago about this mad scam involving fishing quotas and the fact they selling people were selling off their fishing quota to other people. But there was this one fact in it that was something like, you know, a fifth of Scotland's fishing quota is technically allocated to this one wooden boat. And like, and then the company was obviously then selling off its rights to other people. And it was just this thing that was like, you could get a picture of the boat, you could see the boat. This is obviously ludicrous. It tells the whole story of this incredibly complicated financial instrument just in this one picture of the rickety boat. And that's always what I'm looking for when I do investigations or try and tell really complicated stories. What's the one image that kind of brings it down? to a size that you can kind of, you can comprehend. It's one of the reasons that like sex scandals are so damaging, always were, right? Because everybody can understand what it is to cheat on your husband or wife or to fancy your brother's wife or whatever it might be. Like those are very human sized fallibilities, right? Whereas very complicated financial frauds with no, you know, like the subprime mortgage crash, right? It's the great thing that Michael Lewis did in writing his book about that was he came up with a frame about here are all these weirdos who are the only ones who therefore didn't follow the herd. And that's a human-sized story of like, oh, if you're an outsider, then maybe you'd see things that other people don't see. And then you can then talk about credit default swaps and a load of other stuff that would make your eyes cross if you had to try and listen to it dry. And this goes to the whole mechanical allure of gurus because the people who are drawn to them originally show up for the ideas. Something intrigued them, fascinated them, captured them, but then they stay for the charisma of the person, which in turn affects the guru themselves because either captured by audience or incentives are now focused on maintaining this parasocial connection with their audience, often at the expense of the original ideas. And then back to the audience who now see the guru themselves rather than the ideas as the embodiment of whatever it was that was absent in their lives before. You definitely see it in the, um, have you ever, have you seen, do you know, if I say the liver king, is that a name that makes sense to I've you? I've heard you talk about the liver king, but I actually didn't know who he was. <laughs> Except that so he the smells weird, apparently. <laughs> He's what? He smells weird, I think I heard in oh, one of your podcasts. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, no. Chris Williamson had to sit on the couch yeah. after him. He's, um, but he's a huge jacked guy, and his whole thing is like pri. He's hello primals. So it's all about teaching men to get in touch with their like inner caveman. And um, 
you know, and then he sells a whole range of supplements. They're like, this is raw goats, whatever it might be. But but when he got caught out for taking steroids, <laughs> and it was like, oh, so it's not the raw goat, it's the roids. That's why you're so ripped. His entire, you know, you'd think this would be incredibly destructive to his mythology, right? His whole mythology, which is like, hmm, I am angry and naked in the wilderness. No, it's not. I'm actually taking fistfuls of artificially created chemicals. Um, instead, what he managed to do was... He did this amazing, about the most amazing apology since the mad one where Harvey Weinstein said he had to um, pay people off because he wanted to fight the NRA or something. Completely bonkers apology that obviously didn't work. But his, the Liver King's apology was all about the fact that he just cared so much about male suicide rates. Wow. But that's why he had to dupe people. He was like, I've been trapped in this lifestyle, you know, preaching this stuff, and I just felt such a responsibility to people. Wow. And you see this all the time in sort of guru-style apologies, right? Where it's like... I yeah, had apologies to do this. Thing. I, I just had, look, I guilty, yes, of caring too much. And that's how the Liver King's apology went. And it worked incredibly well because you're right. He had done exactly what you said, which is he embodied his brand and he had to find a way to pivot to how he lying to his fans was also in some ways embodying his brand. And like, you know, it, it may very well have worked for him. Right. Have you ever been heartbroken by a guru, Helen? Have you ever had someone that you became disenchanted with that you had once held to high esteem? No, I don't think that has happened. And I think being a journalist is a really useful training for this, which is that I basically mistrust everybody. Um, (laughs) You know, like that that great journalistic saying, which is like, even if your mother tells you she loves you, fact check it. I sort of feel like that about everything. Um, (laughs) You get a second source. Um, So I don't think there is a a situation like that. In preparation, I was telling Vanessa that this is the answer I'm, I, I expect. I guess because there's a personality type that is drawn to journalism, or rather, uh, this is the type of personality type that would interpret journalism as a skeptical, if not adversarial and antagonistic job. A job that would disavow any kind of lionizing of an idea or a person. And maybe I'm just projecting, but I think this heuristic personality type is the one that's always a little more wary of the crowds than of ostracism. Um, I'm cognizant that we have like about around 15 minutes le- left. And I quick have, fire, like, so let's do the quick fire round. Well, I'm curious because I, I mean, we have like, we can either do quick fire round, we can do, I can tell you the buckets that I, we haven't gotten to and you can tell us which one you're more interested in talking about. Um... Well, you can pick. I don't mind. So whatever you're most interested in talking about. Okay. Well, we did we did mention the Jordan Peterson interview up at the top. And I did want to ask you not just about that interview, but about interviewing in general. Um, mm. Because I think you have an, a very interesting approach to interviewing that you're... From what I can tell from, from what I've been re- reading and listening to, you're very good at adapting the interview style to the person that you're talking to. Um, and we can, we can talk about that with, with Jordan Peterson, but also just in general, I think, um, where I didn't do that very successfully, I have to say. Oh, you think? Yes. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like we can get into it, but, um, I mean, for me, it feels like you're, you're cognizant before you're either, or maybe it's a bit of both. You're either cognizant before about like, what would be the rhetorical techniques to use with this person to kind of have a more effective interview, or maybe in the moment you're intuitively mirroring a bit about how to engage, and I'm curious, first of all, about how you kind of approach interviewing. And second of all, if in our kind of current political climate, you're more aware of the stakes of being confrontational versus conciliatory in your approach. 
Oh, definitely. Because you get, uh, you know, pelted whatever you do, right? If you interview people who have unsympathetic or political opinions or extremists, some people don't think you should interview them at all. Like I'm talking about anti-vaxxers, for example. And there will always be armchair generals who think they could have done it much better uh, and will put pick faults with your performance. But I like interviewing because it's a kind of genuine interaction with another consciousness that happens in real time. Like it's a performance, but it's also a kind of dance um, and you have to try and think about your arc of the interview, but what's your immediate next question going to be? How are you reacting to the question you're listening to? And also the things that what builds rapport with the interviewee, like what do you actually have in common is a really good thing to ask yourself before you interview somebody. So when I interviewed James Lindsay, for example, somebody who people think is quite extreme, I knew that we have both been through this experience of being kind of cancelled. And who is so, James Lindsay you know, for the people like so me? He's a, <laughs> intellectual dark web adjacent guy who was part of the grievance studies hoax where they three sort of people sort of exiled from academia as they would put it um submitted academic journals to you know in, on social justice subjects with the aim of proving that academic journals were kind of you know ideologically captured and he has been through a trajectory which we cover in the program episode five which you know he <laughs> this is the phrase that i think encapsulates you spent too much time on the internet ended up on twitter arguing with the auschwitz memorial just, I think that, you know, says log off. And I put this to him. And and like, the thing is that he is always... And has since refocused his energies on calling people groomers online. Yes, he's very big into groomer discourse. But like, the thing that's interesting about James is we obviously have both been through this experience of, of kind of cancellation, whatever you want to call it. And like, knowing what it's like to feel ostracized and have a kind of miasma around you. I think that's how I put it to him. But also, you know, I think you have to put your interviews aren't stupid. And so James knows that I've come from the BBC, that I'm going to make some criticisms of him, that I'm probably going to say he's quite extreme in his views. And so the best thing to do, to, to my mind, in those situations is to be really honest and just to say, look, people are going to say this is really nuts. Why, why did you do it? You must have had a reason for doing it that I don't understand. Like, what is that reason? Because fundamentally, that is the question you're there to answer. And I don't think gotcha questions really work. Um, and you shouldn't try and do them, really, because people are very wise to them and savvy, and it's a performative thing, the most interesting thing always is to try and understand why somebody thinks completely differently to you, rather than trapping them into looking stupid, which is a kind of momentary sugar rush, but no one's really learned anything or, or moved or advanced their understanding of the issue at all. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you weren't able to to take that approach with Jordan Peterson? Like, what, what, oh, where no, do you Oh, no, it's more than just from my very first question, where I said something like, you know, why are so many people buying what you're selling? He just took massive, massive offense as if I was accusing him of being a grifter, which wasn't what I meant at all, really. Like, to me, that was a question about why are you so popular? Like, what is it about you that's connected with the current moment? Which is in some ways an incredibly softball question. Like, well, you know, why are you so beloved is another way of phrasing that. Right. But it was something about the way that I had phrased it that just obviously was like a little bit of grit in his eye. And he, he was quite, um, you know, quite hard going from that point onwards. Do you? thrive on that kind of a bit more confrontational debate type discourse because Adam is Israeli he loves that stuff he like will leave I've got an Israeli friend who is extremely <laughs> argumentative yes and, and terrifying. it's like it's like a it's like an amping up experience whereas I'm I have a I have the opposite I have a oh god it's happening we're getting into this oh no um where are where are you on that uh, spectrum and and how did it influence your approach to that particular interview by a very weird coincidence, I was discussing this with a friend earlier today, specifically my appetite for confrontation, because I've got a, a very odd thing going on, which is that I have, a, I think, an unusually high appetite for confrontation, particularly for a woman, or like tolerance for it. Like, a, you know, that I, I cannot, 
I just, if there's a button that you shouldn't press because it will get you in trouble, I'm just like, but I want to press the button though. I just want to press, oh, I press the button. <laughs> and so I kind of can't stop myself, which is obviously intention with my desire for a quiet life, but also now is in tension with the fact that I'm pretty battered by the last couple of years, particularly, you know, online. Um, and so I do have a slight kind of, you know, tense feeling about getting into arguments because I worry that someone's going to kind of come after me and try and ruin my life because of them, right? I think that's the thing that's interesting. Like, it's interesting you invoke Israeli culture, right? Like, the idea is you all get together over dinner, like you're all friends, but you have a proper ding-dong, fully, you know, great row. But at the end of it, you're still friends, right? And that's the bit that I think I no longer feel like is is true. And maybe that's good, right? Because actually there are some subjects on which you shouldn't all be friends about. So, you know, these, these things have genuine real world stakes. But yeah, I don't enjoy arguing as much as I, I used to just because I think I've got a kind of trauma response to it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing that I did want to ask you about that, that interview in particular is, so <laughs> one of the things that really struck me is that you asked him a, a question that, um, or rather he asked you a question which was something along the lines of how do you prove that our society is patriarchal? And I was so mind blown by that moment because like for me, it's just so, so to me, self-evident that I had never actually taken the time to to query, how do how does one prove that patriarchy exists? I'm curious, you've had four years to mull on this question um, <laughs> if, you've, if you've wanted to, but it... Do you have a different answer now? Like, how do you even go ahead, go, go and answer a question like that? I can't remember what my answer was, but I do think it's, it's actually really not a bad question to ask, right? right? And it's you should, something that you should be able to answer. In fact, I wrote a whole book about feminism right. called Difficult Women, um, in which I go back to things like Engels, the origins of the family. Like there are, there is really good intellectual work about the fact that current society is structured around the exploitation of female reproductive capacity. See, this is, um, you know, I'm getting a bit technical in my language, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not a very easy reproduction, but basically, The Handmaid's Tale is a really good example of it, right? Like, women as a resource. And the fact is that, you know, through traditional societies, if you're Genghis Khan, what you want is lots of women to bear you lots of babies, and then you can control your territory. So women are a resource to be controlled and exploited. And you see that with, you know, the use of rape and impregnation as a weapon of war, right? The idea that you can wipe out an opposing religion by, you know, by forced impregnation. So it, it does all come down to that essentially to female biology. Um, and, and the fact that for men, for all their enormous upper body strength and, you know, all this sort of kind of stuff cannot have babies on their own. The kind of great fundamental paradox of, of the strength of masculinity is that there is also this kind of absence or lack at the heart of it. So that's, you know, but then I went into the question about saying, why do, well, why, why do women take their husband's names then? Um, because there's a very obvious answer that was, you know, that, that you had male line succession, you know, kings went through the male line. Only, so in France, you know, only, you know, only inherits through the male line. Only men can be leaders, all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, almost all religions, you know, only men are allowed to be the, only men can be pope. <laughs> like it's just, it just, it was one of those things where it was kind of mind blowing that you were like, because the thing is that he read it, I think, as like, there are no men who have any problems. That's what you're saying. And it's just not true, is it? Like, that, that's, you know, so you can cite the fact that men make up the majority of the prison population. Men are the majority of people who are killed in violent confrontations by other men. You know, all of those things are true. Um, you know, men make up the majority of, of street homeless people, for example, like that. Like, there are really big problems that men are facing. And saying that the world is 
patriarchal is not the same as saying it's amazing to be a man. It's like just winning the golden ticket of life. But I think there's one of those things where it's like actually you want to kind of be really clear in your definitions. And maybe people are talking at cross purposes in, in that conversation. Right. It's worth remembering that the culture against which Jordan Peterson rose was basically BuzzFeed feminism. Great phrase, yeah. You know, the This intellectual movement that saw men spreading as the worst manifestation of the patriarchy. But the thing about that was that, again, you can say it's a bit like cancel culture, right? That style of internet feminism, which I agree with you now, in retrospect, looks unbearably twee, was driven by the demands of the market. Did people want right. to read articles about the, you know, forced rape of women in refugee camps? No, they did not. Did they want to read articles about how men were really annoying because they used your toothbrush and put it back again? Like, yes, yes, they did. And so, like, that was, for a while, it was what it seemed like feminism was. But it was that was a commercial creation, essentially, right? That kind of, I know what you mean, that kind of, I'm drinking male tears out of a mug, trollish kind of thing, or the kind of moaning. Of, basically, a lot of articles that could have been like, the problem here is my boyfriend and his annoying habits, rather than, actually your problem being the patriarchy it was like the patriarchy isn't leaving the lucy up is it though it's like specifically the man that you live with <laughs> uh, i find that like, so one of the things that i think is tricky in having conversations across uh, party lines is when you invoke words like the patriarchy it can it can actually arrest the conversation right like just just signaling that there are underlying power structures can kind of kind of be like a like put on the brakes, like now we're going to have to like, there's a there's like a closing off, even even if if it's true, right? Even if we can acknowledge that there's a historical paradigm that continues to influence today. Um, and so I don't know. Yeah, there's yeah. lots of words that I don't use for precisely that reason, because they mm. turn people up. I don't use toxic masculinity because it makes half the people go, oh, <laughs> you know, I don't. And I simply don't use toxic femininity. And again, I probably like, I, I in the book, I explain my theory of patriarchy is now like being much like a kind of ruined house that's been patched up, right? Before women had the vote, you know, or were able to earn equal pay or, you know, any of those kind of things, it was much more obvious. Patriarchy was written into the very structures of our laws. Now it's a much more kind of fluid social force. It's maybe not so instantly obvious. Go to Saudi Arabia, it's pretty damn obvious, right? And that's where we were, uh, you know. There's a great line about, Margaret Atwood has about the Hammer's Tale, which is like everything that's in this book has happened to some woman at some time, Um so, you know, that, that everywhere is in a different stage of its journey away from patriarchy, maybe in some cases in a journey back towards patriarchy because, you know, progress isn't always linear. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, I would avoid using woke because people find it pejorative. Again, heterodox, you know what I mean? If, if, if you are, if people, if there is things that people just feel are overused or cliched, then you want to avoid them as a writer. And also just, you know, I'm always looking for kind of neutral language. Um, when you're, you know, it's very hard now that everything is politicized, right? Do you refer to elective double mastectomies for children or do you refer to top surgery? And like, which one of you pick of those has now signaled which side of the argument you're on? You know, do you say pregnant women or do you say pregnant people? You've already signaled a kind of political position. And that's quite a cruel and, you know, counterproductive thing to have done to language, I think, right? To, to take away any possibility of neutral terms. You said earlier that uh, the co reason why you started the uh, Church of Social Justice series was because someone had ha asked you if feminism had kind of replaced religion in your mind. Um, was there a time period where feminism essentially was your religion? Or or what, what was your relationship like with feminism then versus now? I think it was as much my religion as religion ever was in that I wasn't 
ever particularly devout, and okay. I wouldn't say I'm a particularly devout feminist either. <laughs> and I've never been an activist either, right? And I'm very clear about that. And like Katie Herzog of Blockchain reported, I remember her saying a while ago, she wouldn't describe herself as a feminist because she thinks as a journalist, you shouldn't describe yourself as a member of any social movement. And that really gave me pause for thought. And I think she has a really good point. It's a bit late for me now, but she has a very good point, right? Which is probably a more accurate thing would be to say that I'm a historian of feminism um, or, you know, a journalist who focuses on feminism as an issue because feminism has got lots of, you know, it's got strands that are pro-sex work. It's got strands that are anti, you know, um, exploitation through prostitution, whatever you want to say. So it's it's not a kind of easy label and it doesn't necessarily imply a particularly obvious set of beliefs. You know, you can be any kind of number of different flavors. So I think that's always been the consistent problem is I don't like to kind of, I'm not a joiner in. And I think that's a kind of, that's the kind of classic journalist thing. That's how you know you're a journalist, right? If everyone else is having fun and you're kind of looking at them going, what are these humans doing? And why, why are they doing it? You know, like how many times can you honestly in your life say you've been completely lost in the moment without any little bit of you going, well, that's interesting, isn't it? I feel, I feel this emotion we call joy. Um, and that's the kind of great solace of being a writer in that you've always got a way to kind of distance yourself from and process weird or uncomfortable things that are happening to you. But it means that you're not, you somehow haven't got access to the unselfconscious ecstasy that some other people seem to feel, you know, whether it's through religion or through the righteousness of their dunks on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I won't get it. I won't get into this because it's a whole minefield of conversation. But I mean, one of the things uh, we had been thinking about when we pitched that series that was kind of new guru adjacent uh, was the world of psychedelics and how that's a whole way that people feel like they can access new realms of consciousness that maybe they can't in everyday life. And that, that I won't get into it now, but that's something we've been No, but that about. makes a lot of sense. If you're yeah. a kind of uptight person who would never fall on the floor and speak in tongues, then you take some ayahuasca and oh, look, you fall on the floor and you start speaking in tongues. It must be, again, I guess, again, a great relief from the burden of self-consciousness, which the internet does so much to foster in us, right? That you're seeing all of your life as kind of pre-content. Like you look at a sunset and you don't think what a lovely sunset, you think this is going to look great on Instagram. You know, the way that it is, has sort of ruined yeah. life in that, in that respect. Yeah, that's why I got off Instagram and into podcasts. Um, Helen, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's such a great conversation. Any, any final thoughts, words, wisdom, anything you want to shill? Yeah, I was going to say, let me do my comprehensive shilling. Um, the New Gurus by BBC Radio Sounds is available wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, you can find me at The Atlantic. That's where I do my main writing. I also have a Substack because that's the law, which is helenlewis.substack.com. Um, and I am, I am so far 20 days clean on Twitter. Wow, congratulations. How's it? So, are you shaking? What's, how's it going? No, I'm in, I'm in the Sunlit Upland phase now where I've been through like three things that I was really incredibly annoyed by and I've resisted the temptation. I'm feeling strong. Okay. I'm feeling good. Do you have like a pet that is getting the, uh, <laughs> the aggression like, ah? <laughs> no, I'm not screaming at a cat. Good. Don't worry. Uh, or my husband. Um, no, what am I doing? Uh, I'm having long, healthy walks and I'm reading, let me blow your mind, books. Yeah, this is the struggle for me. Adam actually reads like a book a week and I have read a book in about four years. It's terrible. Oh, oh yeah, I will say that the social media cleanse is probably the best thing that the pandemic has brought on me. Um, the discovery that there is, there really is a life outside. So I'll end you on that note of, of, of like, it is great to touch grass. People aren't lying to you. Thank you, Helen. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We are at uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and enemies and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you're feeling in the mood. Until
Until next time, stay sane.